Okay, the next story is one of the most famous ones in scripture, but most scholars agree it really wasn't in scripture to begin with. It is the story Mm. of a woman caught in adultery. It's not in any of the earliest manuscripts we have. It's definitely a later edition. In fact, it doesn't appear in any of the manuscripts we have until 400 CE. And when it does appear, it's only found in the Gospel of John, not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, which were earlier Gospels. And even in the manuscripts we have of John, the story is found in different places in John and with variations in the text from manuscript to manuscript. So why do we even include it in the Bible? Because it's a great story. It totally resonates with who Jesus has revealed himself to be. John's point of view is a theological one. You know that. He asks hard questions and then he answers them, (laughs) often bending the story to adapt to the point he's making. And this particular story is a wisdom story that addresses key conflicts within the early church in a manner consistent with Jesus' teachings. So whether or not it literally happened, is not really the point. This reminds me of some of the work we did um, back in some of the uh, Hebrew Bible series. The story opens with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem, directly across from the temple. He and his disciples are probably camping there during the Feast of Tabernacles. Early in the morning, Jesus makes his way across the Kidron Valley to the city gates and enters the temple precincts. He's relatively safe at this point because Jerusalem is a mob scene during the festival week. He's surrounded by crowds of people who have heard about him and want to hear him teach so they can figure out whether he's the Messiah or the prophet like Moses or what. And I figure there's a bunch of folks who just want to see some more miracles, right? So Jesus sits down and begins teaching them. Suddenly, the crowd begins to roil and murmur. The religious lawyers and the Pharisees are pushing their way through the crowd, dragging with them a woman they've caught in the act of adultery. It's early in the morning, so I'm guessing the scribes and Pharisees must have been tipped off, perhaps by the woman's husband, perhaps by a jealous friend. The scribes and Pharisees say, teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. I mean, they must have actually caught her in bed with her lover. So why didn't they bring the man as well? Was she lured to his bed? Or is he a prominent citizen? Obviously, the scribes and Pharisees are protecting the man involved. They push the woman front and center, and as she stands in shame before Jesus and the entire crowd, they say, the law of Moses is clear. We are to stone women like her. What do you say? And there they have him. They have trapped Jesus. The law of Moses is very, very clear that committing adultery breaks one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus himself has preached strongly against adultery, although he addressed it as the fruit of a deeper problem, the problem of lust. The way Jesus taught about it, Jesus said, we need to root out lust from our hearts. But the law of Moses only addresses the fruit. And the act of adultery, the fruit of lust, is definitely punishable by death under the law. The scribes and Pharisees have finally, finally found an issue that is clear cut. It will be clear cut to the people. They can finally break Jesus' power. What I want us to notice, though, is that the scribes and Pharisees No, this will be an issue for Jesus. 
They know Jesus upholds the law scrupulously, but he also ignores it when an overriding human need is in conflict with it. For example, so far, Jesus has healed on the Sabbath, and he's let his disciples grab handfuls of grain on the Sabbath when they're hungry. Jesus has been clear that human need far outweighs any Sabbath rules. But now, will Jesus say this woman's adultery is acceptable? Will he have compassion on her in her humanity in spite of the law? What we need to see here is that the scribes and Pharisees think there's every chance that that's exactly what Jesus will do. Treating this woman with compassion despite the law would be entirely consistent with how he has interacted with sinners all along. It's food for thought. If someone were hauled before us, would they think they had trapped us because of our mercy? Or would they think we will undoubtedly side with the letter of the scripture regardless of the consequences to the person involved? Will they know we would want to have compassion, that we would have compassion? Or would they be sure we would join with the accusers? Accuser is one of the things the word Satan means. I hope that we would always err on the side of compassion. I hope we would lean towards Jesus rather than the accuser. And truly, It seems that Jesus is finally caught between a rock and a hard place. Finally, the scribes and Pharisees have an issue that if Jesus chooses compassion, will allow them to bring charges against him. I assume for false teaching or heresy or whatever they would have called it then. To forsake the law would destroy his credibility as the Jewish Messiah. Jesus doesn't answer immediately. He stoops down and begins writing on the ground with his finger. We don't know what he writes. I think he's probably just brushing his fingers in the dirt as he tries to discern where the father is in this situation. That's how Jesus handles everything. He stops and looks to see what our loving father is doing. He looks to see where the spirit is moving, and he listens deeply. Back in Matthew 10, 19, when Jesus was about to send out the 12 disciples, he told them, don't worry about what you will say when you are dragged before judges and rulers. The words will be given to you in that hour. And here Jesus is in exactly that situation, and he's waiting for the words to be given to him. The scribes and Pharisees heckle him, but the spirit does not fail him. The words come. Jesus stands up and says, let whoever is faultless cast the first stone. And then Jesus does the most amazing, compassionate thing towards the scribes and Pharisees. He does not stare them down. He does not make this a power struggle between him and them. He leaves all the agency and decision-making in their hands. He does not watch to see who will admit their guilt and leave. He does not shame the accusers. Instead, Jesus bends down again and writes on the ground. One by one, the scribes and Pharisees melt away, beginning with the oldest ones. When they are gone, Jesus stands up and says to the woman, Where are those who accuse you? Has no one condemned you? And she answers, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. Jesus chooses compassion. 
Jesus is the sinless one. Jesus is the one who actually could judge her and condemn her under the law and in truth. But he does not. Jesus does not choose the Ten Commandments. He does not choose the clear words of Scripture. Jesus chooses compassion. Jesus says, go. And from now on, do not do wrong. This is also often translated as sin. The Greek literally means to widely miss the mark, as in missing what you're aiming for. Not even even being close. (laughs) But notice that in this interaction, the woman knows that she has done what is wrong. We don't know the circumstances, but surely she has judged herself. And Jesus is saying, you know, you messed up. You know, you're not headed in the direction you want to go. Go now and change the direction of your life. That is so beautiful and so utterly Jesus. No wonder this story has been a beloved addition to scripture for over 1500 years. It totally resonates with the plumb line of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Turning back to the crowd, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This matches up so well with what we talked about last week, how God and Jesus are not judging us, but are simply bringing to light what is already here in our hearts and offering us healing and wholeness. Well, the Pharisees aren't having any of this light of the world stuff. They say, that's what you say about yourself. That doesn't count. Your testimony is not valid. But Jesus says, well, even if it is my own testimony about myself, it's still valid because I know where I came from and where I'm going a lot better than you do. You have no clue about any of it. You judge as humans do. I am not judging anyone. But if I did judge, my judgment would be true because I am not alone. The Father is with me. The law says the testimony of two witnesses is true. And I have two witnesses, me and my Father who sent me. And the Pharisees are like, (laughs) "Uh uh-huh, then where is your Father? And Jesus says, you wouldn't know him if you saw him. You don't know me or my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father. Now, this is another passage that gets taken out of context frequently. Jesus is plainly telling the Pharisees, one, they should already know the father, but clearly don't. And two, if they'd even gone to the trouble to get to know Jesus, That would have been another way to know the Father. John says Jesus is standing in one of the most public places in the temple, like right right by where people put money in the offering box. It's one of his favorite places to sit. But John says the Pharisees don't arrest him on the spot because his time has not yet come. That's a very John sort of theological thing to say, isn't it? It's the same thing he said about Jesus coming to this festival in the first place. Practically speaking, the Pharisees know they cannot arrest Jesus publicly or the people will revolt. Many, though not all, of the people believe Jesus to be either the Messiah or a great great prophet of God, like the prophet like Moses. To people seeking a way to kill him, Jesus says, I am going away. And you will seek for me, but where I go, you cannot come. You will die in your sin, your failure. The Jews are confused. What does he mean when he says he's going where we cannot go? Is he going to kill himself? But Jesus says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not. If you do not believe who I am, you will die in your sins. And the Jews say, well, who are you then? And Jesus says, 
I'm exactly who I've been telling you I am from the beginning. I have many things to say about you, to judge you. The one who sent me is true. And these are the things I speak. Well, the Jews are like totally lost at this point. They do not understand. So Jesus says, when you have lifted up the son of man, there's that Messiah title, then you will know that I am he and that I am not doing this for myself or by myself. I do nothing and I say nothing except what the father has taught me. And having sent me, he is with me. He has never left me alone or desolate because the things I do are always pleasing to him. They are his desire. And at these words, the minds of many of the Jews are actually changed and they believe in him. Perhaps they suddenly realize that all the miracles of healing Jesus has done and the compassion he has shown are all demonstrations of God's will, what God actually desires for us. Jesus now begins talking to these people, the ones who have just changed their minds about him. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Abide in means to live in, to, or it could mean to remain in, to stay in, or stand in. If you live in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. This particular Greek word for free means to be released from bondage or to be exempt from li liability, relieved of debts, let out of prison, released from indenture, that kind of free, free from the power of evil. God and Jesus are all about stripping evil of its power over us and its burden on us. But the people say, wait a minute. We're descendants of Abraham. We've never been anybody's slave. Well, I'm not sure that's exactly true. They've been enslaved multiple times over their history. Nevertheless, they say, what do you mean we shall be set free? Jesus says, whatever sin you make a practice of is the sin you are enslaved to. Slaves do not abide in the home forever, but sons do. And if the sun frees you, you will truly be liberated. I know you're Abraham's descendants, but you're looking for a way to kill me because you have not made room for my word within you. I speak what I see as I stand beside the father. You should do likewise. Do what you have heard from the father. Jesus hammers this message home over and over, doesn't he? Hear with your ears, see with your eyes, then do it, live it. And the people say, well, our father is Abraham. And Jesus says, really? If you were children of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. But instead, you are trying to kill me. And all I've done is tell you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham would do no such thing. You're, you're no children of Abraham. You have your own father. Now, things are getting awfully heated now. Jesus sounds very frustrated. The people say, are you calling us bastards? Our only father is God. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, if God were your father, you would love me because God sent me here. This wasn't even my idea. God sent me. And are we even speaking the same language? What part of this do you not understand? Your father is Diabolus, the slanderer. You do what he wants. He was a murderer from the beginning and has not stood in the truth because there is no truth in him. He speaks the language of lies. He is a liar and the father of lies. Here in John's gospel, Jesus speaks of Diabolus, the slanderer personified. From John's theological perspective, Jesus recognizes the father of lies. So do we. 
lies kill people. His voice is the voice we hear that tells us narratives that are destructive and false. Jesus continues, he tells you lies. He is not trustworthy in any way. Yet when I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. If I have sinned, prove it. But if I am telling the truth, why won't you believe me? Whoever is of God, hears God. And this is why you don't hear him. This is important. We tend to stress over whether we hear God or not. But it is as simple as a child knowing her own mother's voice from all the other voices in the crowd. The child stays close to her mother, clinging to her hand, watching her mother, desperately wanting to be right in the middle of whatever her mother is doing. (laughs) This is us with God. Listen to the narrative of love, the narrative of tenderness and nurture. Don't listen to the narrative that destroys and lies and harms. Jesus is saying that whatever voice we are attuned to, that's how we will act. We follow our mother's voice. So if these folks were already listening to God's voice, they would have totally recognized Jesus' voice as being one and the same with God's. The people, however, say, yeah, we always knew you were a demon-possessed Samaritan. And Jesus says, I am not demon-possessed. I honor my father, but you dishonor me. I am not seeking my own glory. But there is one who is seeking and judging. Now, that last phrase is a little ambiguous. A few translations insert the word it, seeking it and judging, which would imply that God is seeking Jesus to be glorified and then judging. But the gender of the word glory is feminine in Greek, and the genders of the words seeking and judging are masculine. So that means the one Jesus refers to is not seeking Jesus' glory, but is themselves seeking and judging. So what does this mean in this context? Unfortunately, Jesus does not elaborate further. Jesus is saying he's not in this for his own glory or judgment. I personally think Jesus is pointing out that all glory and judgment rightfully belongs to God, not to these self-righteous people. God is shining the light on these people's words and actions. That's that is judgment. That is how, that's how that works. Their stand is becoming very clear. Then Jesus says something that completely tears it with the Jews. He says, for sure, for sure, I tell you that whoever heeds my word will never see death ever. The people say, Oh, now we know you're demon-possessed. Are you greater than Abraham? Even Abraham and the prophets died. Who do you think you are? And Jesus says, it doesn't matter who I think I am. If I glorify myself, that is meaningless. It is God, my father, the one you claim to be your own God. He is the one who glorifies me. You don't know him, but I know him. In fact, it would be a lie for me to say, I don't know him. Abraham, your father, rejoiced greatly when he saw my day. The people are like, what? You're not even 50 years old and you're saying you've seen Abraham? And Jesus says, I tell you for sure, for sure, before Abraham was, I am. Oh, boy. I am is the sacred name of God. Jesus has just unequivocally and publicly called himself the eternal God. Or at the very least, he said that God existed before Abraham ever did and that he, Jesus, was within that eternal existence. I mean, no matter what, this is quite a statement. And the people pick up stones to kill him. But Jesus quickly hides then slips right through them 
and makes it safely away from the temple grounds. What a way to end our series on Discipleship 102. Wow. In our breakout groups, let's talk some more about what Jesus means when he says he's going away somewhere that the Pharisees cannot go. Then next week, we'll start a brand new series called The Final Parables. It's Jesus' last shot at teaching the Pharisees, the disciples, and the people everything they need to remember when he's gone. There you are. So how was that? Did you have enough to talk about? (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what you were thinking. (laughs) What were some of the observations y'all made? So the questions today were broken into kind of two parts. The the first part was the whole idea about Jesus going away and him telling the Pharisees that they couldn't come where he was going. So what what do you what is your sense of where Jesus is going? Somehow he was going to be with God, either as spirit um, instead of flesh and blood, or or somehow. Yeah, and how that's where he came from. There you go. Because he was always so he went back. To where he was before, right? And but Which and, was with, yeah. but Jesus keeps telling us, but you can, you know, this is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is here. You can have life now. Jesus clearly had life in his real body. What's the difference? What What's the difference? Well, I, I remember that question. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking that. You know, he had talked about how he came from the father and he was returning to the father. Mm. Um, He didn't say he was going to heaven. Like you said, he kept saying the kingdom of heaven is here, but he was returning to the father, wherever that is. Well, that's interesting. If if the father is spirit and he, knowing he was going to die soon, he would be returning to spirit. So in that sense, he he would be returning to the Father. Exactly. And that's such a different understanding than how we typically are taught these, these words, right? You know, it's Jesus always calls us to the Father, you know? I offered in the group that in years past, I've struggled with the language of, son of man and son of God. And how do you resolve that and um, not make it dualistic and make it unitive consciousness in Christ? And yet when you read scripture, if it's literal, there's a strong distinction when the language is used son of God and son of man. You know, and you could have all kinds of thoughts about that, which I have had, you know. And to me, this was kind of in that vein for me to once again visit that and think about it. And how how do I feel about it now in my current theology and spirituality? What does that mean? And uh, and it's certainly not a place. It's um, There's a wonderful Japanese koan that says, show me your authentic face, the face you had before you were born. And that's one of those that you sit with, you know, and ruminate on and think about. And this, to me, fits so beautifully with the teaching today. I think that's in some ways what Jesus was asking us to do, you know. And if one interpretation is that authentic face is when you were of God, in God, with God, you know, everything is God. And show me that authentic face. But it's a journey. It's it doesn't just we talked about that in the concept of Nicodemus and you know, yeah. I'm gonna shut up. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> no, y'all chime in because you're I, I that sounds like a really great line of reasoning here, a great line of thought, right? That was that what what was Nicodemus stumbling over? He was uh, stumbling over 
uh, his history with and dedication to the rules, just like just like the other religious leaders were. Mm-hmm. And he and he also he also didn't he wasn't he also like kept getting hung up on the born again part, right? Like, how mm. can you be born again? <laughs> that was it, guys. That was the stuff. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. remember what it was. Yeah. So I, I, I totally, I totally get Nicodemus though. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> I was commenting about Nicodemus that he was all in. He was like, yeah, this makes sense. All right, I get this. And then I couldn't remember what the stumbling block was. But I said, but then he went one step too far and he, and Jesus lost him. <laughs> he couldn't go there. It was like. Yeah, I think you're kind of crazy now, but okay, the rest of it's pretty good. <laughs> exactly. So when we put this together, Nicodemus and the you got to be born again with Jesus saying, I'm returning to my father and you know, you're going to look for me, but you won't find me because you can't get there. And he's speaking to the Pharisees. What are the implications for us? What is the invitation to us? Do you think Jesus is going off and leaving us where we can't come? That has not been his message yet, has it? No. And that was not his message to people who believed, was it? No. No, it was, if you know me, if you know the Father, if you know me, you know the Father. And if you know, know the, if you knew the so Father, you would have recognized me. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We have the hindsight of the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament, New Testament, and the various writings to know that these historical facts indeed happened and they were miraculous. And yet we still find times we struggle with these things. Imagine being back then having somebody tell you these new concepts which are foreign to your culture and against the establishment and they want you to believe in it and if you must rise up and champion these things, yeah, that's a lot to ask. And that leads right into the second half of the questions, doesn't it? Uh, where Jesus oh, we didn't get there. Oh, really? Oh, good. Okay, well, we'll do it together. Um, because because Jesus says, you know, I'm exactly who I've been telling you I was from the beginning. I have many things to say to you, <laughs> to judge you. Remember, he's talking to the Pharisees. So, and in in his you know, the way he's taught about judgment, it has been to shine the light on what you are and what you are saying and what you're doing. Jesus says, I have a lot of light shining to do with you. <laughs> and and he says, but, but even still, the one who sent me is true, is truth. Um, and these, and, and it is that truth that I speak. And you won't understand this until you lift me up. Then you will know I am the son of man. And that son of man title is code for the Messiah. He never comes out and says the Messiah because that'll get him arrested. But he does use the son of man term always in front of the Pharisees. You can almost tell when he's in front of the Pharisees because he's using that title. You know, he's a lot clearer with some of the other folks offline, offline. But when he's when he's talking to those Pharisees, he calls himself son of man. Uh, so so do you, I don't know if you remember, but Jesus taught about judgment and verdicts. Do you, does anybody remember what the verdict was that Jesus what Jesus said the verdict was? I bet you don't. Give us a prompt because my memory is really bad. Truly. It's John 3, 19 through 21. It's in the. Um, it's in the uh, story of Nicodemus and Jesus says, here is the verdict. The verdict is that the light has come into the world 
and you loved darkness more than light because the light was going to reveal your evil deeds. That was the verdict. Okay. That's what judgment means. Um, that's how judgment strips evil of its power. And so these folks perceive God and the law and judgment in a way that is very rigid, okay? And it is preventing them from seeing that Jesus is speaking truth to them. Their lens prevents them from understanding that God has sent Jesus. So the question is, what has God sent Jesus to do or say? Just in general, what? What? what why was Jesus sent? Why was Jesus sent? What was his job? To help simplify the message. <laughs> yeah, and in Jesus's words, he came to preach um, freedom for the oppressed and and um, all of those. Wonderful things, peace, good news, good news. Good news. Let heal people, heal the lame, make help the blind to see, the lame to walk, um, the deaf to hear. The good news that is the good news that God sent Jesus to tell us that to do these things because it's not just the telling, it's the doing, and um, so. What I'm trying to question here is our lens. We can very clearly see the lens that the Pharisees were using, God and law and judgment. That's the speck in their eye. What's the plank in our eye? What lens do we have we seen Jesus with? Is there... Is there anything in the good news that is at odds with our understanding of God and law and judgment? Well, I, I would say that's, you know, personally, that would be pre-deconstruction and post-deconstruction. Um, pre-deconstruction, my view was kind of narrow. You know, you had to follow these prescripted things or you were out. Um, but now God is so much more inclusive. And the good news is much broader than just those who are in the little church fold. Um, so... That has changed, I think. Has anybody else felt a shift in in their lives over time? Oh, big time. <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> you all have changed me. <laughs> That's the good news. <laughs> That's the good news. I just, it's, it's like a whole lens that, you know, and, and times I, I feel it flip. It's like I'm mm -hmm. that visor that, you know, those old fashioned sunglasses granny used to wear that flip up, you know, it's like, that's kind of always there and it's ready to flip down. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Everything's that's not right. You know, you got to flip them back up. Okay. And let the light in. It, it's that kind of thing. So whether these folks lay down their lens and change their course, repent or not, one way or another, they're going to die, right? We all, our bodies all die. They die. What does Jesus say will happen to them? It, it was just one little phrase This in this class. You may not even remember. <laughs> Well, he just said you won't you won't ever die. He said, if you believe, yes, if you grab onto life and say, yes, <laughs> that's for me, you won't die. You can have I, life now. I thought when when I read that, I, I had a thought back to a couple of classes ago where um I think it was in in Matthew 
where Jesus said, don't be afraid of the people who can kill your body. Be afraid of the people who can kill your soul. Yeah. Be afraid of the and one so, who can kill your soul. Yes. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's what he meant by you'll never die. Yeah. That is your soul will never die. Your body will die. Certainly. But your soul won't. Exactly. And, and it's, and it's, and I, and I don't, you know, and the question becomes, well, what happens to these Pharisees who you can just almost feel that aren't going to change, <laughs> you know, and they die. What Jesus in this lesson says, you know, if you don't believe, you're going to die in your sins. What does that mean? That's the big question. Yeah, that's an easy one. Because <laughs> I don't believe that. <laughs> you know, I have a I have a hard time with that. I, I, you know, so often we separate atheists from who we are, and um, I let that go a long time ago because. Our God is about mercy and love and and inclusion and acceptance. So I don't worry about them. We used to pray for them and we pray for the starving children in Romania. And, you know, I mean, I believe we have a part to play in, in putting that out into the universe. But our God is merciful. Um, I, I love the juxtaposition. I said in the group, Gail, yeah, the juxtaposition of the, this teaching that you brought us but also the parable of the adulterous woman. I mean, that says it all. That, to me, answers that question that you just posed, which is what happens to those. I, You know, that's not ours to judge. But what I am called to believe is that my God is merciful always, always. And I, I that's something that faith is built on. I have to accept that. And I believe we choose faith or we don't. I, I do think we have agency, and that's a principle I choose to believe in. I won't say I believe in every principle that's offered to me in faith-based teaching. I, I, I'm a doubting Thomas in so many ways, but I do choose this one, that it is not mine to judge. That parable is so illustrative of God's mercy and justice. And that's, I choose that. I choose to be there. Hopefully I can practice it as well as I choose it. <laughs> that's the challenge being human, but um, it's what I mm-hmm. hang my hat on, if you will, as a woman of faith. You know, I, I don't have all the answers. Yeah. I don't have all the answers. I, I had a conversation with, with, a former pastor several years back when I was sort of letting go of the concept of hell. And um, I, I wrote to him because I trusted his intellectual way of viewing scripture. And I said, um, you know, I'm not seeing a lot of evidence in the Bible for hell, the way that we've been taught it. And, um, and hell the way I was taught of eternal conscious burning torment just is so inconsistent with the nature of God. Um, and he said, he said, you're right. I don't believe in that kind of hell either. He said, um, I believe that um, God's desire is for all of us to be in God's presence. Um but I think that God also respects us enough to give us a choice. And he said, I don't believe the decision has to be made before you take your last breath. You are given a choice when you are face to face with what you are really choosing. And some people still, for whatever reason, do not choose to be in that full light and presence of God at that time. And so God allows them to leave the presence but that's a very lonely and dark and cold place. It's the absence of all that is love and light. But he said also, eternity is a long time and God's love is relentless and eternal. 
and eventually everyone will turn and come back into the presence of God. And he said, it's a, it's, it's a process of us, you know, still having the option to exert our own will, but realizing what the choices really are. Mm -hmm. And that made a lot of sense to me. <laughs> when yes. the student ready, the teacher appears, right? <laughs> that there are moments that we, people are before us that, Help us, and that's a, a perfect example. But it does beg the question for me that I hope we will get into at some point is that that concept of free will, which certainly was in the tradition I was raised in, and God's will. Uh, because what I hear that you offer, Marlene, through the words of the pastor you sought out is we have agency to a point, but then then what you ended with to me then slips into God's will. God's will is that we all be in that place of love and justice and mercy. So you kind of helped me with that. Thank you. Um, that's something I'll take away and think about. Thank you. It's interesting what Jesus does not say here. Jesus just tells them they'll die in their sins. They'll die in the same state that they are in this darkness, right? Um, this this not understanding God's love in this, you know, holding the this legalism close to them as their only cold comfort. <laughs> and but what Jesus doesn't say, and you'll burn in hell forever in fiery torment. He doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say that. Um, and he's had plenty of opportunity to say such a thing, but he does not say that. He talks about regret. He says, you know, you be a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And the image that came to my mind while y'all were talking was that Jesus came to heal the lame, to heal the blind, to heal those who are deaf. And this is a, these are all metaphors and it is not intended as ableist language to say that anybody who is blind is somehow deficient or any, you know, this is not about our physical bodies or the state of our bodies. Jesus is always talking about what's on the inside of us. Okay. But what it, it made me feel the image that came to my mind was, okay, if you're going to insist on being lame and blind and deaf and deaf, we'll just like make a, a litter for you and carry you along with us. You know, it, it just, it's a choice. Um, and it, and it feels like God will always be there saying, are you ready yet? Do you want to, you want to change your mind yet? <laughs> you know, would you like more than what you have grasped so tightly? That, that certainly seems to be how Jesus has spoken to people, hasn't he? Yeah, and 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 the implication, or at least the way that I am now seeing it, is that that does not end when we take our last breath. I'm thinking our bodies are have very little to do with what the reality is. That a couple of us were talking before class that, and I was saying, you know, I think that that. The rea the realer reality is the part we don't see and touch and taste and smell. It's the other reality that is the most real. Any other comments before we close for today? Oh shoot, I missed some good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be in the in the video. Um <laughs> But I wanted to, I know a couple of you came in later. Um, I wanted to tell you that uh, Shelby's um, got cancer in his other kidney. And they told us yesterday. And so we're waiting to um, hear from the urologist to schedule surgery as soon as possible. And um, I'll be keeping y'all posted. So watch your email and watch the Facebook discussion group because that's how I will let you know if I need to cancel class at some point.
and like it will just be for a week. I mean, it's I'm not going to like forever cancel it, but uh, uh, you know, hopefully. But um, may I ask that we as a group? I, I just love this group. Offer a prayer for Shelby and and for. I would ask that, but I would put a qualifier. I'm Catholic. I don't know how to pray spontaneously. <laughs> I'm going to draw in my brothers and sisters, somebody that does it better than I do, to offer that prayer. But I think that would be a lovely way so that Shelby knows he's in the circle, too. Gail, thank you for telling us. I love that. Yes, please. <laughs> I think you just said a very nice prayer, Mary. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Prayer is conversation with God. Exactly. And he hears us. You um, want to be our father? <laughs> did we um, address the comments by Donna? Um, that was back when we were asking about um, why did uh, Jesus come into the world? And she was saying that it was um, to die for the sins of the world and save the world by his sac- blood sacrifice. But what Jesus said he came for was to tell us good news and to give us life. Amen. Pretty different, isn't it? It's pretty different. That's right, <laughs> Donna. No, no, I didn't get that part in there. So, thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank it's you. It's so for- wonderful. And once you embrace it, it seems so simple, but yet so hard to give to. But it's the most warm, comforting feeling it's like God saying it's okay. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for your prayer, Mary. Thank thank you for all of you for your prayers. I love you very much. And we'll see you next week. Keep us posted. I sure will. Bye-bye, everybody. Love you guys.